Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio, featuring The Crew, where a former pro football player and a D3 All-Star use strength and conditioning as an excuse to talk about anything but. Now here's John and Tex. Just snap the ball. <laughs> okay, let's, let's not fuck around. Let's do that. Uh, there's no pregame. There's no national anthem. It's just I let's like go. it. Oh, Derek, do you bet on the national anthem? No, no. What's the bet? Oh, this is the one of the biggest year and most controversial bets each Super Bowl. Like they they give an over under of how the, long of how long. Oh god! But then they have the the flyover at the same time. So there, there's this always like controversial. Like they don't know but, the official time and different bet sites always mess it up. Dude, the fact that people bet on all this stuff blows my mind. Well, there, there's exciting stuff like what colors the Gatorade dump on the coach at the end. There's so much. Yeah. I love it. Well, Derek, thanks for coming on Power Athlete Radio. And we are going to discuss not only what's happening with the uh, NFL draft and lack of, uh, what is it, uh, the combine, mm-hmm. and really just wrap a little bit of Super Bowl. So I can tell that you're rooting for the Chiefs. It could be the fact that you got what Big gives, Red. What, what gives that away? What gives well, that away? I see Big Red sitting over there on your left shoulder, and he's looking like the Kool-Aid man ready to kick in the door for another Super Bowl. <laughs> Maybe I just like cheeseburgers. Huh? <laughs> yeah. right, let's get a cheeseburger. <laughs> he does love him a cheeseburger. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I, I have certain loyalties, right? Mm-hmm. So, but every year I reassess them, and uh, I figured by, uh, you know, by the AFC championship, I'm, I'm pretty good with this one, with this bet, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was, uh, man, I mean, you did bring up a good point before we started recording. Uh, I thought the Bills game would be more competitive. I like Josh Allen. I think he's a hell of a quarterback. I really like seeing these two guys play against each other gives us a snapshot for like the next 10 years in the NFL. So I was really kind of hoping to see the Bills come out and they, they usually have such a high powered offense and it was pretty interesting to see the uh, Chiefs just kind of dismantle them piece by piece. Yeah. And then, you know, the, 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 um, connection with Diggs. you know, I thought it was going to, you know, even if they're going to try to prevent that, it's still going to be there and they would exploit it a little more, but I, I just, I guess the game plan on defense for, for Spagnolo was, was pretty good and created a lot of confusion or, you know, I don't know, but it, it's, yeah. I, I, and I'm anticipating that might happen this game, you know, because Spagnola has a little experience playing against Brady. So, mm-hmm. um, oh man, there are layers to this. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I mean, it's so incestuous. I mean, geez, uh, when I went to the Eagles, uh, Spags was our DB coach, and then you know moved up obviously and got head coaching jobs and went through and then came back as the defense coordinator. He's done very well. Yeah, I mean, do you think uh, he'll get looked at for another head coaching position anytime soon? Man, this uh, head coaching deal is really interesting. I mean, the fact that Eric Bieniemy. Didn't get hired as a head coach. Uh, I forget the name of the guy they brought into the Eagles, um, but I don't know if I, I did watch his press conference, which wasn't a good indicator of things that, to come. That was mind blowing. That was yeah, mind blowing. Uh, oh, I, mi- I missed it. What happened? Uh, oh, you missed it. Yeah. Yeah, go back and watch it. I mean, um, I, I mean, I realize he's a young guy in his thirties, but as a coordinator and as an individual who is prepping to be a head coach in the NFL, and I and I, I always uh, go back with this little bit of knowledge. I remember talking to Andy Reid years ago um, that he had a he carried this book around. And every time he saw something he liked that Steam Hol- uh, or uh, Holmgren did, or if somebody did as a coach or something within the practice plan or something was unique, he wrote it down and took a note. And the book was supposed to be his blueprint for when he got his chance. 
here was all the mistakes he wasn't going to make. This is how he was going to go through. And I always thought that that was pretty interesting that, you know, as a, you know, offensive lineman, quarterbacks, coach, tight ends coach for for Green Bay, he had this idea that he was going to be a head coach. And he goes from being a tight ends coach for Green Bay, gets a head coaching job. And I think what he did is when he went into his interview, he was so well prepared. He had a game plan. He knew it, you know, and he had, uh, you know, really just interned under the best in that, you know, in that deal goes in and obviously now is, you know, considered one of the best. So it's pretty interesting to see him. Uh, so the I, I forget the name of the guy that they brought into the Eagles, which was kind of a, a long shot. I was really surprised on that one. I thought they would have either brought in Eric Bieniemy or maybe a Deuce Staley or somebody else. But that was kind of a left field pick. Do, do you think that they didn't bring Bieniemy in because of Peterson and the the coaching tree issue, or I don't know, perceived issue, or maybe? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, maybe. You know, because Eric Bieniemy not only played at the Eagles. But then went in and, you know, was a coach for Andy, uh, Doug Peterson, same deal. So maybe they were trying to figure out like, okay, we had Andy here. We brought in somebody from his staff. We don't need to bring in another person from, you know, that kind of Andy Reid coaching tree. So maybe this was kind of a break. But uh, so the guy gets up and, you know, Philly's such a rough crowd. I mean, they booed Santa Claus. Like they, you know, it snowed one game and they put batteries in the, you know, in the, uh, uh, in, in the snowballs, they were breaking glass in the bathrooms on the mirrors, putting it in the snowballs and throwing. So, I mean, it's already a brutal oh. place. You know, you got Angelo Cataldi and W. I mean, it's just a brutal place, which, you know, I mean, and they pride themselves on it. So the guy goes in for his, you know, introduction, uh, you know, his press conference and the dude is stuttering like incomplete trains of thought, you know, can't get a night. I mean, it was just I, I watched it and I was like, oh, man. And, and then, of course, it's like, well, we didn't bring him here to to talk. And I'm like, dude, uh, you know, really, the head coach has got to be uh, the conduit for the team to the press. I mean, Bill Belichick, obviously, being the uh, you know exception to that rule. But, you know, I mean, how much is the head coach really coaching, you know, day to day? I mean, some guys are offensive coordinators, whatnot, but really they're the general on the field and they got to be able to inspire confidence in their, you know, and bring in the right staff to do what they need to do. So the guy did not inspire confidence. No, and, and, and the, the irony was that he was talking about how he was going to make things simple and easy to understand, <laughs> yet he couldn't communicate that. Like, we're going to simplify things and make it very easy for the players to understand, Like, but it took him like five minutes to get that out. And at least Belichick's not stammering over his, you know, you know, we got Cincinnati. <laughs> we got Cincinnati, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's very direct, right? But. Yeah, it's it was I, I I felt for the Philly fans there because it's like okay who do we got? Oh, we got this guy. Okay, great. So well, we'll and, see. The the other thing too is uh, you know I think uh, they were in a rush to hire. I think uh, you know if you're waiting for a head coach, you got to at least wait to the Super Bowl's done. You know, and then you get an opportunity to, you know, cherry pick somebody off Andy staff or, uh, you know, off of Tampa or, you know, bring in the right guy. Uh, But, you know, I mean, it just feels like a lot of the hires this year, you know, um, you know, uh, David uh, Coley was our receivers coach and, uh, you know, for the Eagles and been a receivers coach for a number of years. Now, all of a sudden he gets his head chance. So, I, man, I'm just really surprised. And, And I know Coley. I mean, he's a competent individual. I never really thought of him as a head coach, but I mean, you know, guy's been in the game a long time and, you know, probably deserves his opportunity, but I, man, I'm just really surprised Eric Bieniemy didn't get a job. I mean, dude, he, does it, does it hurt to be a successful playoff coordinator? 
because you're missing out on these opportunities to make that first contact, first impression with interviews? They're already interviewing. So, um, you know, like uh, uh, like if a team were to contact the Chiefs and say, hey, we want to interview Eric Bieniemy for your head coaching job. Uh, Andy goes 100 percent. You know, I mean, he's and, and Andy even came out and said, hey, you know, uh, Eric should be a head coach, should get a chance. So he wouldn't go in there and, you know, do the proverbial cock block and, you know, pull a Belichick and be like, no, you can't interview. So just kind of an interesting, interesting chance. And then, you know, Deuce Daly, you know, Deuce was there, too. I mean, these guys are both Philly guys. I mean, uh, you know, played for the team, coached in the organizations, were there when the Super Bowl. I, you know, I, I don't understand the reasoning to try to sever that. Yeah. And, and do you think both you guys, do you think that, you know, it, it's a different kind of year where there's not going to be the, the, the combine. We'll talk about that. I talked to another coach uh, the other day, yesterday, and about off-season training may just be the same as last year. Like, hey, you're on your own till we see you in July. So there's not a huge rush. Who knows when the draft's going to happen? But there's not this rush to like, let's get organized mm -hmm. and prepare for next season. So why why this sort of shotgun approach of like, well, we got to get our guy before the Super Bowl and we got to pull the trigger? Uh, I think that there's a, a sense of urgency with all the teams that, you know, they have to, you know, there's only a finite amount of good people and you got to get your guy early. Cause if not, you're going to be the last one without a chair to sit on. And I, I like, I, I don't know if that makes sense, especially in this new environment and the way things are going. I mean, I could see it if uh, the combine was coming up in, you know, six weeks, but I mean, we, we've already established there is no combine. So now these guys are going to be, you know, working within the uh, the draft and personal workouts and bringing guys in. But I mean, the uh, front office staff is usually pretty intact. Like when they change a, you know, uh, you know, coaching staff and they bring that, you know, a new individual in. I mean, the front office and the, you know, the uh, the scouts and the people that are actually looking at players, those guys are in kind of a different department. Very few times do you see the front office get whacked at the same time a coaching staff gets whacked. So they're going to come in, they're going to bring in their same players. And it's not like the coaches are complete like noobs that just show up. A lot of these guys have already established coaches are coming from other places. They already have rapport. They already understand it. You know, it's just like a, a, an interesting merry-go-round. It's like this guy goes here and it's just kind of a, you know, the minute that a guy gets a job, he brings in all his buddies and they're coming from other places and it's all, it, it's all the same pool. So I don't know what the sense of urgency was. I just thought it was an interesting move to try to break from, you know, the Mike Holmgren, Andy Reid tree in Philly and bring in somebody who, man, he, uh, maybe we'll chalk it up to that dude just being nervous, but dude did not have a, you know, did not inspire confidence in his press talk. Yeah. Very, uh, well, not really, but sort of Adam Gase, like where you're like, okay, that, that was a good opening presser. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh God. And, and, and what's crazy is, uh, you know, Philly, we were so close for so many years and then kind of had some downturn and then, you know, they separate from Andy and then they bring in Doug Peterson. Doug takes him to the Super Bowl in what, two years. And, yeah, you know, yeah. here, here we are two years removed and he's without a job, which is, which is, is pretty interesting. I'd love to know the backstory on that one. And from what I was reading, it had to do with, uh, you know, friction with the quarterback. And wow. they decided to, you know, go with their big money guy over their coach, which seems kind of crazy to me. But, uh, you know, I, yeah. So, yeah. And I'm even, and, and you can shed some more light on this, but I'm still even surprised that they parted ways with Andy back, you know, whatever, 2010 was it? Mm -hmm. um, because clearly he can win games. Like, and, and again, since 2011 with Kansas City, you know, they may not have been necessarily Super Bowl contenders, but their record is very good. Yeah. Um, 
with different quarterbacks and different players. And so it's very interesting that they decided to part ways and who knows, right? Yeah, no. Well, I mean, um, I think, uh, you know, Andy went to, you know, what was it? We played in three NFC championship games and then that fourth year he finally gets the Super Bowl and loses. And I think that there was just, um, you know, and then that deal with his, uh, his son committing suicide and there was a whole bunch of really just bad press and, you know, they go to the house and, you know, pills everywhere. And it's just, it was just really, really ugly. And, you know, knowing the Philly press and the way they portrayed it. And, you know, when I saw this going down uh, at the end of my career, like, man, uh, um, any negativity that Andy and I had surely went out the window and I just feel for him and saw that bad situation happening. And I think in a lot of ways, change is never a bad thing, right? But him leaving uh, all of that behind and going to a new place like Kansas City, you know, with Dick Vermeil, I've been a coach and you can kind of look at this almost like this, uh, this history of a Philly coach going to KC and, you know, um, um, you know, Lamar Hunt had passed away. So his son's running the business now. I just think there was a lot of like renewing and, you know, Andy coming in and coming to Kansas city, bringing his offense, bringing his staff, being able to go in there and do it again. And there's always an idea that, you know, you do it the first time. And then the second time you get a chance, you do it better. And, uh, you know, and then they struck gold with Patrick Mahomes, you know, the fact that people passed him up on the draft board and, you know, finally the chiefs land their marquee marquee quarterback. And then at that point, just start building it. And it's really, you know, Andy's an offensive coordinator, offensive mind to have somebody that you can do that much, you know, like have that much creativity with just goes to show and really seeing it in his offense. Yeah. How much do you think Mahomes' development was due to Andy Reid's tutelage and, and obviously Alex Smith, yeah. whereas Deshaun Watson or whoever else you want to put in there and, and how that was not as good a progression or, you know. Well, look at, I mean, uh, Andy had, uh, you know, was with Holmgren with Brett Favre and, you know, also had Alex Smith. I mean, not, not Alex Smith. Um, fuck, uh, quarter, um, Green Bay. Um, Rogers. Yeah. was Rogers. So Rogers was the backup to Favre. Three and, years. Yeah. Yeah. While Andy was there. And then, um, you know, obviously comes to Philly Peterson drafts McNabb, you know, and then, you know, I mean, you know, got, uh, you know, to, uh, Coy Detmer and, AJ Feely ready to play and then brings in, you know, other players and, you know, even brings in Michael Vick and to, keeps developing these guys. And, you know, it was pretty interesting for each quarterback. Jeff um, Garcia. Yeah, Jeff shined. Garcia. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, was able to kind of get it done with a lot of different quarterbacks. And I remember, you know, the the game plan that we ran with McNabb wasn't the same game plan we ran with Coy or AJ or any of the other quarterbacks. So he was pretty quarterback centric on like, hey, uh, instead of bending to what I want, I want to call plays that my quarterback can shine and do well and put him in the best position to win. And then at the end of the day, you make sure you have a big offensive line that can run the ball when you need it and just need some real dynamic receivers and a, and a good tight end, which, you know, we had with, uh, God, what was his name? Chad. Uh, he's a Mormon dude. Um, God, we, we had a, you know, some really good tight ends when I was in Philly, you know, and, uh, I think the game plan's pretty, you know, when I watch the plays, I mean, they're sliding to guys, they're moving. I mean, you know, they're running the ball, they're mixing it up. They're really putting a lot of trick plays and letting Mahomes do what he does. And um, he's such a good player. Like, he has such an interesting, like, view of the field and how he plays. I mean, he's exciting to watch. Yeah, because we kind of saw it last year a bit um, with Matt Moore. Like, I think they were 2-1 and one and, and had a close game against Green Bay. And then this year with Henny, you know, he played, you know, a couple of quarters, but it seems like 
you know, you put anybody back there, you're going to have some reasonable amount of success just based on how they set things up. And, you know, they have obviously all this great talent around the quarterback, but, you know, <laughs> you know, we get into these Brady versus Belichick, who was the bigger influence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you do that with Reed versus Mahomes? I, I don't know. Um, you know, we'll see when Mahomes plays 20 years. I mean, like I was reading today uh, that Tom Brady has had three Hall of Fame careers. <laughs> so it was uh, 2000 to 06, 07 to like 13 and then 13 to now. And they went through and like basically put his stats against other Hall of Fame quarterbacks. And he's like, he's had three Hall of Fame careers. I mean, which, you know, got comeback player of the year. I mean, his like it, it's pretty interesting when they make the case that like this guy has had like you know, and uh, the joke was that, you know, the uh, the first Brady is retired and then this was his stunt double. And now this is the next stunt double. And I thought that was pretty funny because he's he really has uh, had three Hall of Fame careers. Now, if Mahomes gets a chance to go, I mean, he's going to go get a chance. But if Mahomes beats him here, what does Brady do? Does he come back? Yeah, that's a very good question. Does he want to finish off on on that loss? Right. But um, then if he wins the Super Bowl, I mean, it, it, it's pretty I, I bet you it would be pretty concrete that if he loses, he comes back. The problem is if he wins, does he do the Peyton Manning and roll off into the sunset? I don't, I can't see him doing that. He's just not that guy. Like, and obviously, you know, we'll see what happens this game, but he doesn't seem to have the same health issues um, that would, you know, kind of put a question mark up in terms of like arm strength. And I don't know. I, you know, a lot of great storylines here. Definitely. You know, but I, you know, I, I, when you're talking about the three different phases, I thought like I would, it made me think of Elvis Presley, like young Elvis and then like <laughs> blue Hawaii Elvis and then fat Elvis, right? Like there's, there's different stages of, of his career, but you know, he's managed to maintain his fitness pretty good through all of them. Sure. I mean, that's the one thing that's pretty universal is he takes a ton of time, spends a ton of money on preparation and making sure he's right and has a team around him, making sure that he's doing the right things going in. So, I mean, he's found for him personally he's cracked the code for what it's allowed for longevity. Now, I don't know if that cracking of the code exists, you know, past him because he's probably a very unique individual, but it's pretty interesting that there's this kind of fine tuning, you know, there's a, a certain code that each individual finds that allows them to do this. I also think that the rules have helped tremendously. Like the NFL that Brady played in for those first six, seven years wasn't the same NFL that he's played in today. You know, they've changed the rules. You know, now these guys, you know, I mean, even if you touch a quarterback, it's, you know, most guys are, are not pinning their ears back the way they were in those early years. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, aside from that ACL, uh, he hasn't had too many injury issues from what I can recall. So, yeah, I think he comes back. You know, I, I just think he's going to be like the Rolling Stones, man. Like he's just going to keep coming back. <laughs> You're like, right? here he is again. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I, I was laughing thinking of Kenny Stabler when, uh, like I remember as a kid watching the game and Kenny Stabler taking off his helmet and he had like a full head of gray hair. And the hilarious part was I, I thought Kenny Stabler was probably like a hundred years old then. And I think Kenny Stabler, when I saw him was like way younger than Brady, you know, he just, <laughs> yeah. he, he just had smoked cigarettes and obviously aged faster. But I mean, Tom, looks probably better today than he did when he was a rookie. They were showing his picture for the Super Bowl for this one pass or, you know, for the one from the first Super Bowl. And he looks a lot more put together and in better shape and more relaxed and, you know, more fit 20 years later than he did as a 23-year-old kid. Well, how old is he now? Like 43? Yeah, 40? he's yeah he's a year younger than me. Yeah, so, 
think about this recent trade, like they're talking about Stafford at 33, I think it is. And, and yeah. it's like, well, not an issue. This guy's yeah. got 10 more years, right? So he's dude, created this precedent. Yeah. You know, I mean, as you know, I mean, dude, when you all of a sudden hit that 10 year mark in the NFL, they started looking around to replace you, or at least they did. Now these guys are like, no, he's just hitting his stride. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is what? How many years is he in? 13? Yeah, he's 37. Yeah. So he's got to be wow. 13 years in. Because I think he did, you know, JC year and the whole deal. But I mean, now it's like because of Brady's or Brady's precedent, you know. What do you think of that uh, Matthew Stafford golf trade? I like Stafford. Like I, I, you know, again, it's one of those things where like all these people who've been banished to the Lions and, <laughs> and never really got, you know, the Barry Barry Sanders, and then I remember um, Megatron, Charlie, yeah, and Charlie Francis worked with um, uh, uh, Johnny Morton. And I guess, you know, I remember talking to Johnny and he was like, well, you know, I, you know, I didn't get all the looks from the quarterback. I could have been a lot, so much better. Like it just wasn't a great situation there, but you know, so there's all these guys that have been there and never realized their, you know, full potential in terms of playoffs and, and Super Bowl. So I, I kind of look at him and go, I, I enjoy watching him play. And I think he's, there's something there. So it's really, it is a bit exciting to see what they do with it. And I hope it does work out on the other hand, I feel bad for golf. Like, you know, um, well, did, I, you, I really, did you see a statement? He's like, I just want to go somewhere where somebody wants me. And, <laughs> and like, he said that and, I, and all I could picture was like little box boy kicking a can like, burr, 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 burr. and, uh, but the, the, the really good quote was, uh, Detroit wasted a hall of fame quarterback, Damn. uh, with Matthew Stafford. They've wasted, you know, by just being Detroit. And so the fact here he is, he gets a chance to go down and go into a team that's, you know, has the opportunity to go play and make it to the Super Bowl very quickly and has the players around him to do it. And what's pretty amazing is that the Rams sat down and looked and said, we're one player away. If we had that dude, we could win the Super Bowl. And I think, you know, and they paid golf a lot of money and, you know, he he's won some games for him. But to sit down and be like, OK, if we had this dude, I mean, because it, it never works like that. It's not like, ah, oh, we're, we're, or maybe it does. Maybe we're one player away. If this dude was just this guy. And we're willing to take that bet, which I appreciate, and trade a bunch of draft picks for it. So pretty pretty interesting. Um, I, I bet you, too. I mean, man, I, I don't know what the contracts are, if they're going to redo them or they're just swapping contracts. But I, I bet you Goff's probably making more money than he was. Well, Matthew Stafford got paid. So oh, did. I'm sure like the extra draft pick that they threw in, the second rounder was just to take on the burden of Goff's contract. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, you mean Goffs or Stafford? Uh, well, even I, I, accepting of this, I mean, both of those guys got guy. paid. Both Correct. of those guys got paid. I just yeah. wonder who got paid more because then probably you're- probably Goff because it came after. Yeah, but both of them are over a hundred million dollar men. Hmm. Well, then I, it's a pretty e- e- easy. I like it because this ups the price tag for Mister Deshaun Watson and hopefully get some draft <sighs> picks back did for you the see Texans. What, did you see what David Coley said? I didn't no. come here to not coach Deshaun Watson. Ooh, I do like that. <laughs> and I, I, I do like that. But the problem is, is like, uh, like, uh, and I like David Coley. Uh, I always got along re- really well with him. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, he never coached me directly, but I always had a good rapport with him. He's, uh, I always remember he was one of our guys on bed check. He's always bust his balls, uh, him and Pat Shermer. So I was telling these guys that Coley and Shermer used to come around and Shermer would come in the room and drink beers with us in training camp. <laughs> And it's, it's funny now to see how many of those dudes on that staff that like we used to fuck with and come and drink beers are all head coaches now, you know, <laughs> from Spags to, you know, now David Coley, uh, you had, um, 
uh, Ron Rivera, you know, um, wow. You know, who else? Um, uh, geez. Uh, Sean McDermott. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to yeah, say, yeah. So, I mean, all those guys were in that staff, so it's pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, wow. uh, Harbaugh. Yeah. John Harbaugh was our special teams coach. Um, so, so can you derive any formula around like how they dealt with you and how many beers they had with you, uh, that leads to their, that led to their success or lack of success? Uh, you know, I think really what it comes down to is the place that you go and the positions you get put in. I think you have to, like, if you're going to go to New York, you got to make sure all your shit's in one sock. Like there can't be any fucking chinks in the armor. You have to not only be able to stand up and present, look the part, dress the part, act the part and get up there and convince everybody that you are the head coach for the, you know, New York giants in the, you know, in the big apple, which a couple of years ago meant something. Now I see these pictures in New York and, and now it looks like, uh, I am legend, but, uh, <laughs> like it, it's true. I mean, like I, I always remember thinking, and it was funny. I always told Tony, uh, you know, the fact that he got drafted to Kansas city, I mean, he had a storied career, but if he had gone to New York, you know, what kind of career would he have had as the, you know, for the giants? I mean, look at what Strahan's done and obviously Tony's doing well too, but, um, it's definitely where you get a chance to go. You know, a guy like Andy goes down to Philly, you know, and he kind of fits the mold for that thing. And, you know, everybody really likes him and then he gets a chance to go to Kansas city. So I, I think it's like, um, you know, like whoever the coach ends up being for the Dallas Cowboys, same thing. America's team, you got to deal with fucking Jerry Jones and all this other stuff. And you got to have a certain individual. So I think within that coaching staff with those people, they, uh, they need to look at just more than the X's and O's. Like, can that guy survive in this environment? So, so who's in the best position of the head coaching hires? Like uh, you talk about New York and I thought of Salah, but who, who is in the best position? I think he's a great hire for, for the Jets. Um, what I really liked about that dude is not only he's a very thoughtful guy, but he's extremely fucking tart. Like they were showing a bunch of videos of him, like running stadiums before the games and training. And like that dude, he's super fit, very, very focused. And really seems like a no nonsense guy. Perfect dude for, for the New York giants. So they almost have to, I mean, sorry for the uh, Jets. jets. Um, they almost have to find an individual that kind of fits within I would say like the, uh, the ethos of the city. And I think he's that's, a good pick. That's what I was going to ask. Like how important is that? Cause New York, Philly, even Kansas, Kansas city has an ethos about it mm-hmm. of the, and you oh, know, Kansas uh, city very well. How important is that? Uh, Andy's the perfect guy. He loves cheeseburgers and barbecue. <laughs> like if anybody's ever been to the uh, Kansas city Chiefs, So, so th- this blew my fucking mind when, uh, I remember when they opened up the stadium, on Saturdays, so people could show up at Saturdays at noon to start their tailgates because okay. people were upset that they didn't have enough time to get there and get their barbecue right. So, like, we would go in practice, and as we were leaving in the morning, all of a sudden we'd see the Winnebagos come in, and these dudes would start these like epic, like trailer barbecue, epic things. And, uh, you know, coming into the stadium on Saturday morning, the smell of smoke and barbecue, I was like, man, I know why Andy Reid came here. I mean, because Andy does like to eat. And, uh, you know, obviously, have you, have you been to Q 39 mm-hmm. in Kansas city? Yeah. Like, yeah. So apparently they have like, you know, he has that, that's where he goes and it's like a bit, you know, he goes there and it's like, you know, when, you know, he comes in, I'm sure they put a robe on him. Like, oh, uh, they probably uh, carry James him Brown. Yeah. 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 Oh, he's like got a fucking chairs. Yeah. He's got a big chair. I mean, dude, he is uh, like, I mean, to not only win a super bowl, but to be able to have this competitive, a team and to really bring it. I mean, like there's no place like I guarantee when we, uh, you know, we watch the Super Bowl, the amount of Kansas City fans 
that probably will try to get to the game and can't. That'll just be out there. Will be uh, unbelievable. Incredible fan base of individual, you know, and they they pull from that whole area, so it's really good. But I, I really think it takes a certain individual that pairs up with the kind of the personality. And um, I, I just don't think you can have chinks in your armor at this point. There's too much access with players, with social media. Uh, there's too many people like looking for you to fuck up that if you go in and you have any chinks in the armor and everything's not completely perfect, I think you're going to really, really struggle, especially in those big markets. Yeah. 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 You, yeah, you, you got to check off every box. Um, and, and it's much more difficult. Uh, again, the team, uh, you know, was talking to somebody from Seattle and they were saying like, listen, we didn't have any COVID positives and we're very careful about that. And, you know, but I think it's much more important. And that's why I wanted to talk about off season training because you guys are going to be part of that over the next, whatever, four to six months. What, what, what should teams be trying to do in this off season, knowing that we're going to get back to the kind of COVID no, no training camp, no OTAs or sorry, no off season training camp, no OTAs, what do you do with supervision? What do you, you do? You try to place people with certain private sector people. Do you just let them fend for themselves? Like, I think it's a really interesting off season again. Yes. All the above. I, I think the smartest thing would be to, for the teams to reach out to some private sector guys that are in kind of get some uh, training groups. Like if there were people here in, you know, we'll use Austin, Texas, and they reached out to me and the guys here are power athlete and said, Hey, we want to send 10 guys over every day. And this is what we want the facility to be. And it's a private facility. You guys don't have any members, but we want to go in and have you guys work with them and get them ready. And then we're going to send our coaches or send experts in like, you know, uh, like yourself. And, um, I think that's the way that they should handle it. Unfortunately, uh, I bet you they're going to do this kind of like, well, you guys are professionals, go figure it out. And then, you know, guys are going to have to figure it out. But I think that's, I don't know. I wouldn't feel comfortable with that, but I bet you a lot of the teams are going to say to the guys, Hey, it makes sense for you to live close to the team and then set up somewhere in a private facility somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, again, it'll probably be different from each organization to organization. Like again, the, the team I was talking to, they're like, well, guys don't stick around here because of the weather. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult for us. And so if you're maybe you're in Arizona, you're in Florida, um, LA, Southern California, it's a lot easier, but yeah, I, I, I just think, you know, we had this discussion the other day, uh, we were talking about, um, strength and conditioning and, and unionization there was an article about like should strength coaches be joint make a union to which a lot of the reply was like well a lot of pro teams are gonna be like okay whatever you want to be in a union screw off like we'll find somebody like you know we don't we don't want to deal with that so um and especially well, aren't strength the, coaches in the coaches union because the, the coaches have a union i know that's a very good question i mean i know in the past strength coaches would be eligible for things like pensions, NFL yeah. pensions and all that. But I don't think that's, that's happening now. I think it's different now for, I don't know when it changed over, but um, it's not the same as it was like Jerry Palmieri at the giants, right. You know, he was under a certain system and he had his pension and all that. And, you know, um, and is, is done quite well. So I, I, that would be a very good question to figure out with, with the professionals, but you know, the, the question was brought up, well, okay, there's no off season training, which, you know, would occupy, you know, whatever, eight to 10 weeks of a uh, strength coach's time at the facility preparing, you know, all these things. Now we don't need them. So do we just contract that position out for training camp, preseason training camp, the season, 
maybe they come out to watch the combine. Maybe they come out for off-season training. You know, who knows if we're going to have off-season training the way the Players Association is kind of posturing. So it's, I think it's a, <laughs> it can be a little bit of an anxious time right now for what is the role of the strength coach in professional football. Um, are to, you paying this guy 12 months a year? Well, well, uh, I, I want to piggyback off that and ask the question for you, John. Where does the value come with the strength coach? Because we've had a number on. So it's not just the X's and O's and the workouts. Where have you seen value from these guys to the teams you've been a part of? So uh, I was in kind of a unique situation in that I never got an off-season workout deal. So because, uh, you know, all these guys were getting paid within their off-season workout deal. So they had to make these X amount of workouts at the facility and there was no financial benefit for me being there. So if there was no financial benefit and I was going to be spending my money to be there anyway, I was going to spend my money on what I thought was the best training. And so for me, that was down in Tampa. I trained with Rafael Ruiz and we had a bunch of X or sorry, present or current NFL players that showed up every single day. And about at one point we had like 15 NFL players that were showing up every day to train and our training groups were insane. Like the, like the competition, the sprinting, the running. And all of a sudden, you know, I'd go back and they'd be like, Oh, so-and-so made every workout this off season. And I'd be like, Oh, good for him. And they'd be like, Oh, you know, you didn't, you know, the only ones you made were OTAs. I'm like, great, let's line up. Let's go into the testing. And I would go in and absolutely fucking kick the doors off and smash all the testing, go in and win the conditioning test and then go in there and be fine. And be like, hmm, I guess uh, all those workouts were really valuable and watch that guy get cut. So, um, I think for a majority of the individuals, especially like people like me, and I remember asking him one time, like, Hey, how come I don't get a workout season or like off season workout deal? And they were like, well, we know you're going to come back in shape. Why the fuck would we waste money? We only, we only waste money on people that we are worried about that we think are going to be problems. And I was like, fuck. Okay. So I lost out on a bunch of money on that way by actually being a try hard, <laughs> you know, guy that wanted to come in and shape and be able to rock it. Uh, but, um, like it wouldn't scare me in the least. Like for me personally, if they said, Hey, there's no OTAs, you know, no off season training, nothing. I would go down and I already had my regiment set. I knew where we were going. I knew the facility. I knew everything. I already had that set. And I would also, I mean, I didn't have a home gym, but I guarantee if after last season, if I was playing and I didn't have a home gym this season by right now, I would have had fucking hundred grand worth of Sornex and every piece of equipment I wanted. I would either built a building, cleaned out my garage, built it downstairs. I would not have been in that situation ever again that, that if we go back into quarantine or there's some issue, um, I would have just built my own training facility, found an individual to come in, you know, uh, true form sprinters, hills, whatever we needed, you know, guys have available income and they can spend it on that. And at the end of the day, it's a bitch and tax write off. And if you build that in your house, it only is going to add value to it. I mean, it seems like, uh, I have a friend who's a pretty big builder here in, uh, Austin and every architect now is designing fitness rooms and gyms. And he came to me and said, Hey, this architect's creating this. Does this look okay? And I was like, it looks a little small. What does he want to do? Does he want to lift weights? What, you know, what is the ceiling height, but they're not building homes without some form of weight room, uh, you know, training facility, you know, training room area now in, in homes. So I think that's a real, real thing. But I do know that, um, there's probably some people in your area that are doing some pretty good stuff. You just have to be able to link up with them. Well, that's, that's certainly a good business model there. Like, you know, help design home gyms for pro athletes, especially now. I, I assume that there's not going to be the same run on a, uh, equipment that there was last year in, in, in a short amount of time. So now you have some time to plan what you want this facility to look like so that you don't have to go somewhere else where it could be closed. So I, yeah, that I think, you know, get together with some equipment companies 
and set some stuff up for home gyms. That seems like a great opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, you can only control what you can touch. And so like, for example, you know, power athlete and, you know, the building we have, you know, we control everything in that environment. So, you know, I know who comes through the door. I know how the whole thing works and, you know, there's really no random occurrence. And if it was something where some players were coming in, you know, it'd just be like, Hey man, it's off limits. It's just for these guys. We don't want to put these guys in a, in a stressful situation. We want them to come in. We don't want them to be training at a commercial gym and doing some bullshit and maybe potentially get infected and get injured. So I think it's really just going to come down to the front office and the staff looking and seeing who's out there and then being able to reach out and place their players with some, with some good coaches and, and then who has resources to do it. Like for example, if we got contacted, just like I'm sure if you got contacted, I'd be like, no problem. We have everything to do it. And we got a whole fucking system for you. Come on in. These guys will get ready. If you send me offensive alignment, it'll even be even better. Well, Broncos are lined up with Landau performance out in Denver. Yeah. Maybe they foresaw it coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, do you think, do you guys think that this is kind of a tipping point or a pivot point where everything from here on is going to be different? Like it's not, we're not going to go back to the old way. It's going to be, yeah. Hey, uh, we had a full NFL season and we got a pretty exciting Super Bowl. Why do we need an off season? Do you think maybe the Players Association might be pushing that direction? Because, Hey, it worked out okay, regardless of the 45, whatever ACLs, yeah. the 17 Achilles ruptures. Yeah, that's close enough to what it used to be, even though we didn't have a preseason. But I I, I kind of think it might go that way. It's just a very easy sell. Like, yeah, everything's good. We did pretty good. Why do we need that that off season? Um, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing like the current effect. So we're seeing like, okay, here's just one year, but we have the last, let's say 10, 20 years of doing it a certain way. So we have that momentum, that kind of that wave crashing far over on the shore where, Hey, you know, you're bringing in guys from super bowl. Do they really need an off season? Do they really need this? And you know, guys are probably beat up and the guys that are really playing are in this. The problem is when these guys age out and those other guys that have been kind of indoctrinated into this new thing and haven't seen that far wave. Like we used to have, you know, guys that were eight, nine, 10 year vets that didn't practice during the week. And they went in and played fine on Sundays and they always said, hey, this guy's taken a ton of reps. He's had a lot of opportunities. He played in a lot of games. He, he might not need as much prep work during the week. You put a, a young guy in that situation and his fucking feet go crossed and his eyes go crossed and he ends up you know, getting murdered. So I think what we're seeing is this kind of wave breaking far effect where, you know, as these guys are coming, they see the wave, it crashes and now everybody's kind of getting better. But eventually that wave's going to start crashing short. And I think that's where we're going to see it. So I think for one year, maybe even two, you're fine. But at some point, they're going to have to go back to a little bit of this. I mean, just the just for the talent evaluation point to miss the preseason's huge. I mean, that's where all the young guys and all the talent gets kind of evaluated. I mean, Patrick Mahomes isn't getting evaluated in the preseason. But his backup is his third, you know, some young guy that comes in and all of a sudden it's a third string running back who might potentially start for you in midseason. That's the guy you assess. And without those games and without that offseason, it's really hard to kind of put your finger on those guys. Well, it's interesting. You have two teams, one team that pretty much is the same team as last year. And I think they benefited from having that continuity. And then you have another team where they kind of, you know, pieced it together, um, you know, albeit with the one of the great the greatest quarterback of all time. But. What, what do you see there in terms of the contrast? Well, or? well, they brought in a bunch of home run. I mean, you got Flornette, who was a Hall of, I mean, uh, um, Heisman Trophy winner, you know, has a bad experience in Jacksonville, comes in as a free agent, and that dude can run. And he's, what, four years in? You know, you bring in, I mean, 
we forget AB was one of the best receivers in the game. You know, goes through all of his whatever he's got going on. Still an, an incredibly talented player. You bring Gronk back. And, you know, I mean, happy Gronk is way better than sad Gronk. I mean, he, you know, he gets a year off. He feels pretty good, puts him into the system. I mean, think about how many Super Bowls and how much uh, experience that those guys have, you know. I mean, so you bring in talented, experienced players into that situation that understand that they are there for one or two years to get this Super Bowl and get it done. And I think that there's an incredible sense of urgency. And um, I'm not a huge Bruce uh, Arians fan. Um, I know uh, we had Jason Dunn on, who was our tight end at the Chiefs, and JD likes him. I just never really liked him. Um, I, and, you know, whenever I hear, you know, he's a player's coach, what that means to me is that the players are running shit. I was like a, I was like a coach who's like, not necessarily a disciplinarian, but like everybody, like uh, nobody is thinking that the players are running shit. So whenever I hear players coach, I just think fucking, you know, here's some guy who bends over every chance he gets whenever at the players whims. And, uh, but Arians has done well. Um, you know, I mean, you, you gave him enough weapons. I mean, I hope to God you bring in Tom Brady, you're going to win some fucking games. Yeah. And if you're a players coach and you got Tom Brady and he's kind of taken over, I'd be okay <laughs> with that. Yeah. Be like, yeah. I've been in a lot of situations where players coaches have absolutely crumbled because the people that you know, roll up to seize power aren't necessarily the best character. You know, believe me. I mean, they, you know, it's real easy to be a Tom Brady or a, a players coach when Tom Brady's your, you know, your spokesman. Yeah. I was watching like a, a documentary on the Lakers and Celtics and that was kind of the magic Johnson thing. Like, don't worry, I got it. Like, you know, you know, uh, I can't remember who it was. If it was Pat Riley starting out, but it was, yeah, I got it, coach. Don't worry. And they kind of just let him do what he wanted to do. And Hey, look at that. That guy's a great coach. You know, so yeah. well, I mean, you, you got to be smart enough to step back and, you know, let playmakers be playmakers. And I think that's what they've done in Tampa. But I'll tell you, it was pretty interesting when they kind of were in that weird midseason slump. And then Bruce Aarons was kind of shooting some shade and casting a little bit on Tom Brady. And I was like, holy shit, I don't know how this is going to end well. And I guess Tom probably took that shit personally and went out there and was like, you think so? I'm going to torch you. And so it was probably a pretty good move by him. But I was like, holy shit, I'm not going to take that bet. Yeah, that could have backfired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wouldn't have been good. Um, man, I uh, it, it's really pretty fascinating idea, but uh, I know they're getting rid of the combine, which feels antiquated. Um, you know, the combine was never about um, like the, to me, like the the way the combine was always explained, it's a check mark. So they watch all this film on you in college. They talk to you. They have an idea who you are. Now they put a test out. And what they're trying to do is see if you study for the test. If like they think you're a five flat guy and you can do 30 reps at 225 and you're going to vert 30 inches and you're going to run a, you know, 509, 503, something, whatever it is. And they put you into this scale and then you show up and you do what they think you're going to do. You get a check. If you do a little bit better. Oh, this guy's a little bit better than we thought he was. But if you shit the bed and you come in and you run terrible and you don't bench, you don't do anything. Then what they assume is that you didn't study for the test. And you're not the guy they thought you were. So all that happens is when they go to the combine, they watch a guy, just check marks. He yeah. is the person that we know him to be. He studied for the test. He prepared for it. And it gives him a chance to interview. Um, so that's the way the combine, you know, get the medical done too. Yeah. I mean, the days of the Mike Mamoulis where, you know, guys on nobody's chart comes in and absolutely fucking demolishes the combine. And then they draft him number one. Uh, I think those days are past because teams have been burned so many bad, so many times by those individuals who just come out and they're a, you know, one combine wonder was the comment that they used to use. 
And then they go back and then, you know, teams like Al Davis and other ones where it's, you know, I'm going to draft the fastest guy and this guy blew it up at the combine and these guys don't pan out. So I think the teams are pretty sharp. They watch a ton of film. They watch every game, everything you've ever done. They put you through private workouts and those coaches make an assessment if you're the type of guy they want to bring in. And then they go up on the draft board and it's kind of very systematic. They kind of list all their players. And if there's a guy get drafted, they kind of knock them off. And if they got three quarterbacks and everyone gets drafted, then they're going to go with that fourth guy. So they're pretty strategic in how they do it. Yeah, that was the weird thing for me of, of being at the combine a couple of you know different years. And I thought, okay, the first time I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. I want to see how, you know, what the discussion is around the players and the performances. And, and it was pretty much crickets. It was like, you know, there were strength coaches. I said, well, are they going to involve you in the evaluations and help assess? And no, no, I'm going to go get a beer with, you know, my friend yeah. I used to work with over here. And then we're going to go to, you know, it, it had nothing to do with looking at physical assessments and, and grading players. Uh, most of the, most of the intensity was around, like, let's get the medicals done. Let's get the interviews done. Like you said, um, and we'll, we'll pull, we'll scrape something from that. But there was absolutely no fanfare, at least internally around the testing. It was more just the show for the NFL and to kind of keep people looking at, at the NFL at that time. So it's, it was a little disappointing. Well, uh, but, but what we're seeing is a change in technology. So uh, you know, before everything got so digital and before we got so jiggy with all this stuff, you know, scouts used to have to show up and they would literally watch film. And when I say watch film, watch VCRs, and then they got into cutups and then they had CDs and now it's all digital and they can shoot stuff. But these guys physically would show up and they would get every tape of every game and they would, they would put these scouts in rooms and they would watch you know, they'd be there three days and they would watch every single game you played. They would write evals and then you would go and then they would call you in and they would meet with you. And I remember um, this guy had watched, I forgot, I think he was from the Jets. He had watched, um, he was a scout, he watched every film. And then he came in and said, hey, which which film do you think I should watch uh, to show your best representation? And I was like, fuck, I don't know, anyone, pick anyone. He picked one, we went through it. And then he wrote me like an evil, or he was like, hey, you know, like, here's what I saw, you know, whatever he left. And then a week later, the uh, offensive line coach flew out and put me through like three workouts in two days. You know, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, like we just kept doing more and more shit. And, um, and then I remember he's like, you know, it's pretty good. Uh, we're probably going to take you with our second or third round pick. And I was like, Oh shit. And then they didn't draft me. <laughs> like all of a sudden their second round pick goes, the third round pick goes. I had teams calling and tell me, hey, we're going to take you with our second or third round pick. And fuck, I got drafted by the Eagles. I was the second pick in the fourth round. And I watched all those people just keep, you know, but they, it's the way the draft board, you know, they rank players on this. And when guys go in, it's just kind of a numbers game. So, you know, at the time you kind of take it personally, but then you understand the the way it worked. So are we going to see a swing back to the the big five schools dominating? Because now they can say, hey, you're going to get a University of Oklahoma pro day. So when your time is up, your three, four years, we're going to make sure since there's no combine pro day versus well, there's a there's one dude I want to highlight. Ali Marpet. He's number 74 on Tampa Bay. Division three all star now starting in the Super Bowl. Yeah, I uh, like uh, what's pretty amazing. And um if you're a good player, they're going to find you. It doesn't matter if you're in the third, you know, but uh, I, I guarantee he came in undrafted. What got a chance? Actually second round, but he's one. He in was a, a second round draft pick out from a division three school. Uh-huh. One in a million. Dude, mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty, pretty unbelievable. 
Um, but I think for big for big schools, their their sell is, hey, we're going to get you on national TV more often. If you come here, you're going to get a chance to play in the biggest games, to play in the biggest stages, which is going to help you get to the next level. Just pure exposure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be a bit of a time machine where we get, it's going to go back to the old way, I guess. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I broke out my old uh, vinyl records from like the seventies and eighties. And, uh, I was kind of worried that maybe, you know, they, I played them too much, but then a lot of the time, all I did was play them once and transfer it to a cassette. <laughs> and then I just, you know, but you had to nice. actually, you, you can't drag and drop the songs, right? Yeah, into yeah. a playlist. You actually had to put the needle on the record and then listen to the song as it's recording. And you're like, okay, that maybe I have to adjust the levels, re-record that. But it was a, an entirely different process, kind of like what you described with game film, where you're like, you know, it took a lot more time and patience. And I think there was some value to that. Whereas now it's, you know, maybe they, there's not as much thought. What well, do you they, think about that? They had a deal where, um, so they, they always had like a main video guy. And I'm just going back to Cal. And I remember the coach would go in and, uh, you know, scout would be like, hey, um, I need every, you know, red zone play. And then the dude would have to go through and like do all the cuts. And like it, it, it took forever. And so like they, like they had to go do their homework. They had to show up. Now it's like a push of a button, emails it to them. So, I mean, the way these coaches are getting their cut ups, I mean, they're, I, I, I think there's some like universal, program that they all log into and yeah. they can cut and send and they they have it for all sports lacrosse even just cuts up and they you know you highlight the color of the jersey and then they know when you're on yeah and it, it's all ai so i mean i think they have a ton and um, you know what like they're also going to have you know the the coaches to talk to you know if they're worried about a guy's training they're going to walk in and talk to the strength coach so i think which has always been the value that college strength coach would probably have a little bit more weight than he ever had um, but who knows how the NFL evolves? Um, I think sometimes uh, I think a change is good to change the system. But I said at the end of the day, like the only way you get ready to play football is by playing football. And you do that in OTAs. You do that in, you know, in training camp. And the fact that they're cutting training camp and they're coming, they're cutting this and they're cutting preseason. Like that's when I see. And but you know what? I'm glad to be wrong. Uh, the quality go down. But who knows? Maybe this year the quality has been better because guys were ready. But who knows? Maybe maybe that's a carryover effect. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There was this accumulation of ten years of doing it this way, and then one year we're we're going to see a, a market correction in three years, maybe. Yeah. So, well, so. the injury thing, man. Like, uh, you know, I follow your Instagram, and, and you're pretty good on all this injury stuff. And uh, the only thing I could think of is a lot of these injuries are non-contact injuries. Yes. You know, the Achilles ruptures or this. I mean, these are all non-contact. And I'm thinking like, you know, why are these happening? We can go through all the mechanisms. You can watch it. But I really think it comes down to people or, the, or, or you know, not having the tissue prepared to accept that load. Or, you know, or maybe it's some lingering issue or something's happening. And I just think they're, they're going to have to find a way to kind of reduce that. And I think conventional medicine is failing them in that regard. Yeah, like there was a fellow who... Um I can't remember if he was a defensive back uh, for the Chiefs. Did you see that one where he fractured his his femur yeah. on a non-contact femur fracture? And I'm like, <laughs> I have never heard of that. Like, you know, usually when you hear femur fracture or pelvic fracture, some guy's like skiing in Aspen and hits a tree. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that kind of threw me that there's that type of injury. Non-contact tragic injury um, is, is way too common. Well, I mean, think about the femur. I mean, isn't the femur like the largest bone in the body? 
I mean, so, and the guy's a DB, so let's say he's under 200 pounds. So like, it's not like he's a 400 pound dude and yeah, yeah. you know, he's got some weakening of the bones and maybe, you know, but I mean, who knows that could also be indicative of something else. I mean, you know, when you hear that, I think uh, leukemia, cancer, I mean, like, is there something down the chain that's happening that this was just an indicator, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I think about all those things and I got into this deep dive around nutrition like, you know, the quality of the food that we're eating and, and maybe that's influencing tissue strength and bone density and all this. So who knows? Uh, Tom Inkland and I had a real good conversation about this probably about three weeks ago. Um, he made a point. He said if because uh, I was asking him, like, you know, how come when we look back at like some of those old strong men, we look at some, you know, these individuals from turn of the century, you know, obviously they didn't have the, you know, the training aspect that we had but why were these dudes so thick and strong and tom's like the food was dramatically different he's like if this had been a hundred years ago and you'd eaten the diet that you're eating today he goes the nutrients and just the nutrient density and the quality of the food was so much higher he's like now we have to supplement the shit out of people to even try to get close to what it was but that only takes a lot of blood work and fine tuning and this and he's like the the quality of the food is just not what it used to and he made a good point he goes if you'd eaten your diet a hundred years ago he goes, it would be dramatically different for what we'd seen today. And he goes, it's, it's just, you know, and he's really in that nutrient testing and does all this blood work, works a ton with cancer patients. And he's like, people are just, even the people that eat incredible, he's like, you know, that eat as close to the diet that we recommend. He goes, they just don't have the same nutrient, uh, the same nutrients in the levels that we would expect. And he goes, the only thing we can figure is that there's just lack of nutrient density in the food. That's really depressing. It is. Oh, it's, it's totally depressing. So I, uh, I get a daily newsletter. There's a, what's it called? It's called, um, the genetic literacy project. And it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. I, I get this thing and they're funded by Monsanto. And so it's, it's basically all this propaganda for GMOs and how, you know, uh, uh, glycophosphates never hurt anybody. And it's pretty funny. And I get it just to kind of have this, like, I know who's behind it. And so I get it to kind of laugh. And I, I, I remember I, I, I've been reading it for years. So just every day for like a few minutes, I'll go through and I'll be like, oh, God, it's so it, it's so it's like reading like the political stuff that's so skewed on one side. Like, you know, you're reading The New York Times. And I read one today that said that um, uh, the largest decrease that we've had in covid cases, we're winning this war started on January 21st. And that's when their graph showed it just dropped. And it's like, <laughs> I'm like reading it and I'm like, well, the day the evil orange man left and we brought in Biden, now all of a sudden we're winning the war in this thing and we're opening back. It just, it, it's really funny. But yeah, the same thing with that genetic literacy project. Their mission, John <laughs> just pulled this up. Science, not ideology. Mission is to aid the public, media and policymakers in understanding the science and implications of human in agricultural genetics. And if you look at who funds them, it's Monsanto. And it's basically talks about, I mean, so like when I got all my blood work done recently and all my testing, I was like abnormally high for all these environmental toxins. And uh, oh. we, were, we were going through them. And it's like, you know, gasoline and, you know, glycophosphate that we don't even use that are just within the food. So I asked Tom, I'm like, is this normal? He's like, yes, this is totally normal. And the numbers that, that you're looking at aren't high at all. He's like the people that are out using Roundup and all that. He's like, I can tell you that the glycophosphate absorbs through the hands and starts causing some of these issues. And he goes, you know, people are having these problems. And unless you do some pretty jiggy testing, you don't really see it and nobody really looks for it. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting in that regard. But yeah, I mean, it, it's absorbed within the food and then you're eating it like, um, <clears throat> 
Tom was saying that uh, uh, corn. So everybody that, that he does testing now and me, me in the same way, like have these, you know, huge allergies to corn. And I asked him why. And he's like, ah, the only thing we can figure is the GMO because the research we have, nobody was allergic to corn up until this point. And now people are more allergic to corn than they were to peanuts and, and soy and, uh, and wheat. So I don't know. I mean, would I go in if, if a guy had a non-contact femur fracture, would I go in there and do extensive blood testing and figure out why? 100%. Like, I'd be like, whoa, 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 this, this just isn't some random occurrence. Something crazy is happening here. We got to get to the bottom of this. Red flag, red flag. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it sounds like what you're saying that our food supply is now a repository for toxins, which uh, is, is pretty scary. And, and, you know, can I just grow vegetables in my backyard? Is that the solution? I, I have no idea. Where do those seeds come from? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't, uh, dude, I, I was thinking about you. Uh, in the last couple of days, I had a guy hit me up, uh, for programming and more importantly, how to use EMS. And I've had a few people hit me up recently and I'm like, there's so much information out there on it that, uh, and I always tell them like, do you have any EMS device and are you using it? Yes. Okay. It's better than not using it. How you're using it is really the fine tuning, but it's just funny. Like people, uh, and I, I know you put out a ton of stuff. I have like a free thing, like I put out to people and send it to them and people still hit me up on that. And I'm like, man, this is, this isn't witch doctory the way people think it is, but you know, and I'm sure how many NFL players are you working with that actually are using it and using it the way they should? Not enough. Like uh, again, uh, you know, when the, when COVID hit, I was, you know, I told you guys that I had contacted some suppliers and I said, Hey, they've got a stipend for exercise equipment and maybe they can't get weights. Like they should all get a, a stim unit. And some people, some teams expressed some interest, but there was no follow-up whatsoever. And, uh, I think a lot of people thought that it was just a stretch to get players, you know, who may not understand how to use it or will they use it or, you know, it's uh, EMS. It's so way out there. Let's just send them a dumbbell or a kettlebell. So I think that that education piece has to be pushed a lot harder. And, and, you know, unfortunately there's, you know, you'll see stuff on, um, you know, on infomercials about Dr. Hose, you know, and it looks, it looks a little uh, sketchy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I get it, but at the same time, I get more buy-in from parents who are, uh, who have college athletes or athletes who are trying to get to college where they will say, okay, let's do this. The kid's going to be away from home. Um, I want something to help with their muscle tone management, strengthening, rehab, whatever. So I've had more buy-in on that level than I've had at the pro level, which is, which is unfortunate. Most of my, uh, when I get hit, hit up the, with, um, with consults or clients over 40, I recommend every one of them. I'm like, Hey, how many motor units are you recruiting per workout? They're like, I don't know. How do you count that? And I'm like, well, here's the problem for every injury and all your shitty mechanics and all the time and history that you've gone through and injuries and whatnot. Uh, all of that is a D D round or down regulation. So let's say you go in and you know, you bang some heavy weights and we're trying to get max un- uh, motor unit recruitment. How many are getting recruited? I don't know, but, but I'll tell you how we're going to get hundred percent. We're going to use the EMS devices either before and after. And I found for some of our older athletes actually using it before almost awakened things and allowed them to do better. And, you know, for our younger athletes that are, you know, don't have the injuries and that they jump in and, you know, we'll use them to kind of clean it up and make sure they they recruit all those motor units. Um, but all of a sudden, all the older athletes that I'm working with that use it beforehand are all of a sudden fucking smashing things. And they're like, oh my God, I've never felt this explosive. I haven't felt this good. I'm recovering faster. I feel like I'm getting more quality work done. 
And I'm like, and they're, they're like, is it this simple? I'm like, yeah, it kind of is. And I think for, uh, for NFL players too, because so much of that motor, uh, motor unit recruitment, and you understand the mechanism better than I just gets blunted due to this injury, you know, systemic inflammation, yep. all these other factors yep. and they, and they can't access some of these high order type stuff. Now, all of a sudden they put on the devices. Now they're getting that max unit recruitment and it almost teaches, you know, and that, I mean, that's what happened to me when I ruptured my patella and then got connected with Charlie through Mauro de Pasquale. And it yep. was the EMS device. Hey, you can't get that thing to fire. You're going to use this device. It's going to teach you how to fire your quad. And then eventually your brain will figure it out. And it worked. So, yeah. And it's a great, it's a great, uh, diagnostic tool. Like I'll, you know, if I have something going on in this elbow or this knee or this hip, put it on and the EMS device basically, um, supports that, that finding, right? Like I need more millivolts to fire that quad because the knees buggered up. Right. And so as those things start to balance out and I need, you know, maybe 20 milli. Uh, milliamps or whatever it is on either side and it balances out guess what the knee pain is gone so it it it, it is good for like uh, there was somebody i did a, a test on total knee replacement and it took like you know 20 milliamps for one side total knee replacement 150 mm-hmm. right and then as we went through the rehab that came down so that it narrowed down to now it's like 20 35 but you know it's it's a lot better let's just say Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like uh, the, the other one we've been messing a bunch with is uh, uh, the occlusion. So I, I, I firmly believe and I'm testing this with with one of my older guys. Uh, I think that uh, doing maybe three bouts a week of occlusion with daily EMS mixed in with a pretty smart strength conditioning program, you know, with, uh, you know, making sure we're hitting different rep ranges and, you know, bilateral and unilateral and enough pulling and pushing and just a smart kind of three, four day a week mixed in with like, you know, every other day, you know, mixing up an arms and a lower with some occlusion and then making sure that they're using some EMS. I really think uh, that to me is probably the one of the smartest approaches I've seen. And when I look at NFL players, I think, dude, if I had NFL guys coming in, especially if they were beat up, I would have them do some form of occlusion training early in the season, kind of build that GPP, put on a little bit more muscle mass, not beat up their, uh, you know, their uh, ligaments and their tendons and their joints use the EMS device to make sure we're getting max unit recruitment, get them really good on the aerobic base, lift some heavy weights, make sure their trunk is stable and then kind of get them through that phase and then just fucking put your foot on the gas pedal. And it That's doesn't, point. you know, and it, it like, like that feels like the right move, especially in this environment, because if they went out to private for training facilities and they kind of contracted, they could do some stuff like that. I just think with uh, the facility and some bigger stuff, I just think that they, it's just easier just to put guys through the line. All right, here's your workout. Here's your coach. Go through. Get the fuck out of here. Derek, have you seen occlusion at any NFL teams at all that you've worked with? I, I know that they are using it as part of some RTP because they're obviously like at the combine, they'll have somebody come in and do a course for the PFATs. And I know some teams are using it a little more than others, but it's certainly, you know, there it, it is a bit of a flavor of the month to some degree too. So they're kind of using it with everything, right? So I like the idea, John's idea of like you combine it with EMS, so you get uh, the recruitment piece and you get the uh, the hypertrophy and the, the tissue growth and all that. Um, and then I've also been looking at both of those. Uh, there's a group here that I'm helping out and they're looking at PRP and stem cell injections and kind of bundling all those things together. So you have 
um, you know, the initial phase when you do the injection and you don't want to disrupt it. So you're using EMS to provide some passive loading and pain management and then the occlusion as well. So I think there's a lot of, I hate the word biohack, yeah, but yeah, yeah. to some degree, you're, we are kind of looking at these innovative ways to kind of speed things up with tight timelines. And so, well, the, uh, um, pretty fascinating man like the uh i think i first got i I first heard the term prp probably like in 2003 2004 and then the big thing was the prp and then the stem cell and it was interesting because the stem cell research was kind of lackluster like they were talking about hey stem cells are going to fix everything and then the problem was the results weren't necessarily meeting what they were looking for and then they figured out the exomes and you know the exomes of the rna that allow the stem cells to talk and they were washing it. So the stem cells had no way to communicate when they figured out that piece of the RNA with the exosomes. That I think is where things have gotten really, really fascinating. And when you look at the research of them, you know, uh, you know, scaffolding using fat to, for the stem cells and then putting the exosomes on top. I mean, that's really pretty fascinating. Um, I was talking to Tom Inkledon and they've done some research with uh, ALS patients and people that have had Parkinson's where they've done systemic exosome IVs and seen improvements within their conditions, you know, obviously because the exosomes are small enough to go across the, uh, the brain blood barrier. So, um, I, man, there's so much jiggy shit out there. There's so much cool stuff. And, um, you know, unfortunately I think there's a very, very small percentage of people that actually know what they're doing, but there's yes. a lot of people peddling a lot of stuff. And yes. so when I get hit up on this deal, I'm like, ah, that's that's not exactly what I've read. And more importantly, that's not what I've talked to from the people that are kind of cutting edge on this thing. But um, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Like Dr. Ants, who did my shoulder surgery, he's pretty much, you know, they've done a ton of research in terms of like pulling stem cells out of bone marrow and spinning it down and then, you know, using some other procedures and seeing, you know, pretty good effects of it. Uh, but I think for these players, like there's so much out there. There's so much interesting research. All they have to do is put it into a system and then be consistent to use it. But it also takes a certain expertise. I mean, uh, you know, like when it comes to the EMS stuff, I mean, I, I, I default to you, but it's interesting that we kind of came at it from the same place and kind of looked at it from this idea of a, of a performance device. When I, whenever I, I see it marketed, it's marketed as a recovery device. And I'm like, no, 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 this isn't a recovery device. This is a performance device. Unfortunately, it's hard to sell that in the performance market. Yeah. And in Europe, it's marketed as a toning and, and aesthetic device, right? Which is... <laughs> which is too bad. Um, but I, I kind of look at you as kind of a one percenter where you're like, you're this anomaly. Like this is what you did for your off season training. This is, you know, this is what you're doing with EMS and you know, the other 99% is kind of missing the boat. Do you kind of, you guys get into those, those discussions about how do we create that, expand that 1%? Yeah. I mean, we're, I think the problem we run into all too often is, uh, um, like, I think people think about like, Hey, um, this is what I can do. This is the, you know, the environment I can control. Right. I mean, everybody's done this like, Hey, we use barbells and I mean, it's just like, I think everybody's just kind of copying what everybody else does because it's safe. And I think with, uh, NFL guys, because they're so talented and because they have so much, you know, genetic opportunity to do things, all you have to do is put them into a system that's not going to hurt them. And I think when they're in that mindset of like, well, I just want to hurt these guys. I get that. But how are you going to like, how can you force them to improve if we don't stress them in different ways? Okay. You don't want to try to load up the squat with a thousand pounds. I get it. But there's other ways for us to stress it. I think the EMS device was, uh, you know, it is one of the smartest. I mean, I mean, geez, uh, you know, Charlie was talking about that. I mean, 25 years ago. I mean, uh, dude, I talked to him in 99. 
you know? Yeah, so I, I have an article from like 81 that I can send to you that he wrote. Yeah. Like it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. No, I mean, it, yeah, like I think he wrote in T nation about it. Maybe, um, yeah. you know, there's like, it, I mean, it was in his book. I mean, he was using it. I mean, uh, the fact that that information and that technology has been around for as long as it has and is still not being utilized. Absolutely blows my mind. Did he have his athletes use it before competition? Like, are we going to see it or hear about any NFL guys using it this weekend, Derek? Um, in special cases, I think he did in terms of like, you know, if it was, again, either to bring the tone up, muscle tone up to kind of provide readiness or bring it down if it was, you know, hypertonic. So I think you you can see that. And I even know that they, you know, Charlie had a lot of influence with Al Vermeil and things that happened during Al Vermeil's time at the Bulls. And I know there was talk about how they used uh, different types of stim, um, you know, during the playoffs. I think, you know, it was whether it was Rodman or Pippen or somebody with their back or something, and they, they had an approach for it. So, um, you know, again, yes, uh, it should be used, um, but do they have the knowledge and the confidence to do it? Um, on the sidelines or whatever, I think they should, but you know, it's, it's a big leap, John, I think. And I, I, I just, you know, I wish it was you being used more. Uh, the funny part is, is, um, and I, I just remember the comment, um, if you're not sweating on the top of your lip and like almost reaching for it to pull it and turn it off, then you're not going hard enough. Like yeah. you have to have that sweat. Like you have to literally ramp it up. And I remember the comment was like the minute that it starts to feel okay, you got to go up and you have to push the intensity to the point where, you know, it gets to the point where you feel like you're going to cramp. Something's going to rip and you're going to, you know, effectively kind of push it. And when I started doing that, that's when I saw the performance gains. And the harder part though, is conveying that to people and not a lot. Maybe people are like, Oh, like everybody that I've seen that's had lackluster responses with EMS is because they don't understand that piece. Like we had a guy here this weekend who had a patellar tendon injury and he was talking to me and he had, um, I had a mid patella. I think he had a uh, top of the kneecap patella and he's had all these issues. And I'm like, Hey, are you using any EMS devices? Yeah. I've been using the Mark pro. I'm like, doesn't go high enough. It's a recovery device. It doesn't have the megahertz and it doesn't have the settings that I would need to do this. And then I asked him, I'm like, how are you using it? And he's like, oh, I'm like, okay, so you're using it in terms of like pulsing. That's not what you need. And so I, I told him like, hey, uh, go check out the power dots. If you have access to a compex and I need you to do those higher register ones. And I explained it to him, like, send me an email, I'll send you the, you know, the information sheet I put together on how to do this. And I mean, we, we went out with the guys at development group and brought EMS devices Hi. to them. And I took them, I controlled it. And I was like, this is how this is done. And these dudes were like, ah, and I'm like on deployment, this is what you guys should be using. So it, it helps to have somebody explain it to you that way, where you're kind of ch constantly chasing that piece. And, um, you know, that's kind of the way to do it, at least the way that we've seen it done well. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's a real problem on the research side is that you cannot do that kind of study where you're getting people to like bite on the leather strap and, and, and push it to that limit. Because I, I just don't think from an ethics point of view, that's going to fly right you you know i always remember in psych class they always showed that one where they would the guy would you would shock the person and i guess there were fake shocks and all that and everybody's like oh my god like you know this is an example of what would happen in nazi germany like you know how, how you can get people to follow you but i i just don't think you could actually shock people that much with the ms to get the effects you're talking about the adaptation you're talking about because nobody would volunteer for that study um, or they would run screaming out of the, out of the room. Right. Yeah. I mean, but, uh, when I couldn't fire my quad, so it was, uh, that mid patellar rupture three weeks, I didn't get out of bed three months. I didn't bend my quad. I couldn't even get my quad to fire. 
And all of a sudden I'm at like six months and I'm thinking like my NFL career is done. Like I, I have like six months to get ready to go to, you know, like, like I, like the amount of time and what I did in those first six months, like I'm like, shit, like I'm out of this job. And it was through that connection. And all of a sudden within three weeks of doing it, where I would just go home, I do it before I do it after, um, you know, opposing muscles. And I would ramp that thing up to the point where I was like, this is fucking either going to electrocute me or something's going to shock within three months, all of a sudden everything rewired. And I was the starter on game day. You know, the, the following year. And when, whenever people ask me, I'm like, the training didn't change. We didn't do anything else. The only change was that EMS device. And I, I, I wish I'd known about occlusion because I would have been fucking doing a ton of occlusion to try to get more muscle mass and more density in the leg and, you know, think about the healing properties associated with it. But the only difference was that EMS device. And I've, I've, I've told people this for 20 years. Even when I was a current NFL player and people would have that injury, I'd tell them, hey, go get one of these. This is how I did it. And People never did it. <laughs> it's so sad. Yeah. I mean, ACL tears, like it, it's, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's like, uh, you know, for you, you know, coaching sprinting and being like, hey man, like this is how you run fast. And then people don't listen and you're like, okay, well, I guess you don't want to run fast. It just, it, it I think you get to a point where you're like, man, am, am I taking crazy pills? Cause this, you know, I mean, who knows? Yeah. No, you can only. You can only bang your head on the wall so many times before you're like, okay, let's move on to something else here. I know it works. And yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. Well, I know one of the best things as a coach is to just sit back on game day and enjoy the experience and speed and display of athleticism for your athletes. So let's get to game day. Well, I was going to say that, uh, any predictions on this thing? What do you think Mahomes is going to do? You think it's just going to turn into a shootout? I kind of hoping it does like, um, you know, it it seems like Kansas city, you know, if we look at, uh, the, um, the previous two years when they were in the AFC championship against Brady, it was sort of like, let's just, you know, throw the ball downfield, big plays and all that, where I think they've evolved into being more strategic. Um, and, and just even these simple things like, you, you know, the last game Tyreek Hill went off in the first quarter, wasn't it? He got, I don't know, almost 250 yards in the first quarter. Um, and I think to some degree they should have that threat a bit, but against the Bills, you know, throw it to them underneath, pitch it to them, 70 yards, like McCole Hardman. I think that that kind of short game that could have the potential to be long gains um, is going to be interesting. And I, I, I just can't see them not going to that. And, and hopefully Sammy Watkins is ready to play. And then that adds a new dimension and Edwards Alaire and, so this, this sort of short passing motion type offense, I think is going to be pretty interesting. And I just don't, you know, if they're doing it right, you know, I know Tampa Bay's defense is supposed to be pretty good, but I just can't see them having the same speed to match that, you know. Yeah, well, we're looking at 56 as the over under at the total points. So that's pretty high. Well, the, the, the thing which I, and I said this on the podcast with Jason, the thing I love about the Chiefs defense is how stingy they are. They just like don't give up points like they kind of, you know, the people will get some throws and they kind of move the ball on them. And then all of a sudden they just bow up. It's so like uh, like I don't need a defense that's going to go out and annihilate people. I just need a stingy defense that like lets you run a 12 play drive and then go three and out that lets you go, you know, 18 plays and kick a field goal. I mean, like that stingy defense, which is, you know, uh, what I think the Chiefs have is so good. And I'm like, man, it's good. And they have some really good lockdown corners. 
I mean, dude, those guys can play man-to-man better than anybody. So it's a, it's a stingy defense and an explosive offense, which to me is a pretty good combination for a Super Bowl team. Um, I think with Brady, uh, the problem is, is you got this old man weird mojo magic that like, <laughs> fuck, like he... <laughs> Like I was like, I don't know what deal he made, but if he, if if, it, if if I hear that he went out to the crossroads and found Robert Johnson, I wouldn't believe like I wouldn't doubt it. I'd be like, this is, you know, straight up Robert Johnson crossroads shit. Well, he does fatigue and age set in in last game last week during the, the championships, three second half interceptions in the first half. He looked amazing. Mm hmm. Will it set in? I don't know. I mean, uh, I saw the the best meme I've seen. They showed like an old goat and like a baby goat and they were like battle of the goats. And uh, I thought that was perfect, you know. But uh, I think if Mahomes wants to be the heir apparent, you know, I think for him to put a diamond in his crown, he's going to have to go beat the man. So it's going to be good. I'm excited. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think we've seen Brady have some bad games um, and lose. Um but the Mahomes thing is interesting. Like, I think if they get behind, it almost like supercharges them. And, you know, like if you look last year, whether it was Houston or uh, Tennessee, they got behind and that just drives him. Um, I think when they get ahead early, I think they kind of, there's not that, that urgency. So I'm, I'm interested to see just how it plays out and if they do get behind or if it's tight and then, you know, they get a little more risky. They tend to run more f- plays on fourth down, um, you know, so I don't know. I, 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 I can't, you know, obviously I'm biased here, but I, I just can't see how what you said on the defensive side, the pass rush seems to be picking up for Kansas City through mm-hmm. the playoffs like last year. Um you know, just all the weapons on offense, you know, uh, special teams. I don't know. It, it's, it just seems like they've got everything covered. And, uh, but like you said, the Brady wild card there could, you know, he could come out and just, you know, just have precision passing and just, you know, see the field differently than other people. So I don't know. It's, I think it's still going to be exciting, just the anticipation. And, but, you know, when it comes down to it, will, Mahomes just be too tough, like just too tough. You know, he's not going to make as many mistakes. He's going to, you know, he might run for a couple of third down, you know, runs here and there just to kind of keep things going. He just seems to have too much going on for him right now that, that I don't think Brady has. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. Well, either way, it's going to be a hell of a game. All right. Well, I think that's good. Thanks, Derek, for jumping on Power Athlete Radio. We really appreciate it. And uh, always great to have an expert and chop it up. And, you know, thanks to my co-host, Mr. Chris McWilkin, a.k.a. Tex. Oh, yeah. And once we figure out what the hell's going on in the offseason, we'll get you back on, Derek, to see if this is the proper way to analyze and prevent hopefully injuries going into the new year. Well, if you get reached out by anybody in this area, man, swing by, we could always, uh, you know, we got a full facility if you ever want to bring anybody in. So it'd be great to, you know, see in person and get to chop it up a little bit. Well, I think, I mean, that's definitely going to be my recommendation for, for some of these teams is like, you got to seek, you know, do your due diligence and find out where you can place your players, whatever you can do. I think that's going to be really important um, because I'm just tired of seeing like, you know, the guys out on the beach doing the sand workouts and, you know, Instagram magic stuff. And, and I, you know, get, I want to see guys doing, you know, all the good training, the weights, the the plyos, the sprinting, the, you know, all the multi-directional stuff properly. And I just, I don't see enough of that right now. So I'm, I think you're right. The wave is going to hit and 
you know, we're going to see problems maybe in a year or two where people haven't had this type of training. And, and, you know, and, and for the most part, I would like to think that most of the teams are offering that when they get into their off season training. Um, but there's always ways you can make it better. So I, I think I, I'm, I'm a real fan of like the private sector people who do it well. So we'll see. Awesome. Well, cool. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. See you. Thanks guys. Yeah, that was great. Awesome. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!